Shalom Alechem, Erev Tov, we are studying Agadah together in the Talmud. Last week, we began the commentary of Harav Kuk, Alam Shalom, on this piece of Agadah. And Harav Kuk was trying to explain to us in simple terms, the Ma'asem Kava, the chariot of Yechezkel the Prophet, the secrets of the world, on the most simple level possible, if you remember. And he said that in order to understand that, we have to understand that a complete, wholesome Jewish person contains inside of them four elements. And we got through the first two, and that's where we're up to today. So if you look in your PDF, um, the first word in the line, you see where it says Torat? Torat? It's like ten lines down maybe. It says Torat on page four. Yeah, very good. Torah Hashem. See that? So now look into the middle of that sentence. It says, Ha'alef. You see? Hey, Aleph? Okay. So the character traits that a person needs to be a follower of Torah Hashem, the first thing, to actually fulfill the mitzvot of the Torah. The first thing that everyone has to know in order to be a proper Jew, is their job is to fulfill all of the mitzvot of the Torah. You can't be a servant of the Creator if you don't serve the Creator. You cannot possibly have a relationship that is complete and wholesome with Borei Olam, with the Creator of the universe, if you don't listen to the things the Creator told you yes to do, and the things He told you not to do. Hasheni, the second thing, is to be a completely refined person in your nature. To walk in the footsteps of the Creator. Based on what our rabbis told us, the highest title you could receive in Jewish tradition is a chassid. What is a chassid? Someone who is in English, they would say pious. A chassid is a pious person. A righteous person. Midat a chasid, and the character or trait of a chasid, he ha kolelet kola midot atovot kunan, includes inside of it, contains in it, all of the good character traits that are in the world. So the first level was to observe the mitzvot and to distance yourself from the things that are averot, that a kadush bachu says don't do. The second level is to refine your character, to have good character traits. And Rav Kuk is telling you that a chassid is a person who embodies all of the good character traits that exist. The word chassidut, the root of that word is chet, samech, dalet, chesed. What is chesed? Kindness. All of the good character traits. And like the truly pious one, the Hasid wrote in his book, Misilat Yisharim. Who wrote the book, Misilat Yisharim? Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato. Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato. Let me tell you a little bit about the life of Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato. Otherwise known by us as the Ramchal. The Ramchal. The Ramchal was born in the year 1707. In Padova. Padova, which is in Italy. So he was an Italian-born chacham. 
he passes away at the age of 37. So we're talking about 1744. About 37. In Akko. Akko, which is in Israel, but was then in the Ottoman Empire. He spent his life in all types of places, but mainly Padova, Amsterdam, and Akko. His primary rabbi was a famous Sephardic Chacham by the name of Chacham Basan, Rabbi Yishayahu Basan. This Chacham, if I ever sit with you and study together the history of the Ramchal, it will take us a few weeks to get through. One of the ugliest episodes in Jewish history is the life of the Ramchal. Anything that you've ever seen in the Jewish community pales in comparison to what was done to the Ramchal, Rabbeinu Moshe Chaim Lutzato, in his lifetime. Harav Basan was one of his major defenders as his rabbi, as his teacher. The Ramchal, at a very young age, has learned so much Torah and has refined his character to such a place that he far surpasses not just his colleagues, but sometimes even his teachers, not only in understanding of the Torah, but also in what he considered to be his communication with the divine. Now, you could be a Kabbalist or not be a Kabbalist. I'm sharing with you history as the Ramchal saw his history. From a very young age, the Ramchal already established himself a yeshiva, the pact among the students of that yeshiva were very intense, very deep, like non-blood brothers. No Lashon Hara spoken about each other. Only good words spoken there. Dedication of Torah, uh, the prayer of meditation. The Ramchal is not shy to say in his writings, I was taught this teaching by an angel who appeared to me last night and taught me X, Y, and Z. Eliyahu Hanavi, Elijah the prophet, met me and told me ABC. And almost naively, I don't say that in a negative way, he begins to share that not just with his students, but to all the people who come to his yeshiva to hear him speak. Now nothing happens in a vacuum, so let's, let's accept that before we blame the rabbis of his generation for being evil people, the rabbis of the generation are struggling with a similar phenomenon of a young man, who's very charismatic, who claims to communicate with angels and beings and all other things. Who am I talking about? Shabtai Tzvi. Shabtai Tzvi, the false messiah that's in Turkey. And many of the characters, the main players who oppose Shabtai Tzvi, see the Ramchal as the new kid on the block who's trying to do the same exact thing. Namely, one of his most prominent opponents was none other than Rabbi Moshe Chagiz who you've heard me mention here in a positive context in many different places. Without getting too deep into the controversy surrounding the Ramchal, and I have here in front of me a book, there are letters, letters that Ramchal wrote, letters that were written to the Ramchal, letters in which he swears to the various Batedin that summon him You know when a person suffers a lot? 
I have no doubt in my mind that the reason that Amchal passed away so young, aside from life expectancy back then, perhaps it wasn't so long anyways, was that his life was made miserable. Bitter, more bitter than you can imagine. He fled to Amsterdam hoping to find a, a safe haven from the persecution of the rabbis that were persecuting him elsewhere. Amsterdam was this place of thought, of open-mindedness. Didn't work out well for him. Ultimately, the Batedin in different places forced him to stop writing Jewish literature. If I'm not mistaken, the Bedin in Frankfurt, Germany, they burned his writings. Yeah, hundreds and hundreds of his manuscripts. Let me just, I once saw here in this book, there was a section which included a very brief Could be that it's not this book. Maybe it is this book. Here. At the age of 14, the Ramchal is already fluent and familiar with all of the Talmud, the Zohar, and the writings of the Arizal. At the age of 15, his rabbi, Rav Basan, leaves Padova. And at the age of 16, he loses his other rabbi, Rabbi Yitzchak Chaim Kohen, who taught him Hebrew grammar and languages. At the age of 17, Ramchal joins a secretive group of Torah students called the Seekers of Hashem, the Vakshe Hashem. At the age of 19, the Ramchal is ordained as a rabbi. At the age of 20, on the eve of Rosh Chodesh Sivan, the Ramchal receives his first visit from an angel, a Magid, another spirit from another realm. And in the month of Elul, the Ramchal already records conversations at the age of 20 with Eliyahu the prophet. Like I told you, you don't have to accept Anything aside from I'm telling you the life of the Ramchal according to the Ramchal. The age of 22, the Ramchal continues to go studying by his rabbi who had moved at the time. At this point, the Ramchal had written almost 10 books at the age of 22. At the age of 23, Rabbi Moshe Chagiz wages his first war against the Ramchal and many, many other rabbis come to visit the Ramchal. It's also at the age of 23 that the Ramchal swears in front of a Bedin that when he writes his books, he will no longer quote things that were taught to him from an angel. That way not to upset any of the senior rabbis who were upset at this uh, revelation that he was sharing with them. The Ramchal at the age of 23 writes about 15 more books. Just in that year, yes. Downloading. They're downloading. Yes. <laughs> yeah. The Amchal definitely believed he was downloading. Yes. Um, 
at the age of 24, there's a big celebration. He establishes this group of pious colleagues. And he, at the age of 24, gets married to his wife, Tzipora, who was the daughter of the famous Chacham, Rabbi David Pinchi, at the time. Pinchi, I don't know how to say his name. And that year, he wrote three more books. By the time he's 26, he wrote another two books. At the age of 27, he gets a letter of approval from his rabbi in one of his famous books called Sefer Vikuach. That's another 10 books he writes in that year when he's 27 years old. At the age of 28, he leaves Padova. And the Ramchal is summoned to the Bedin in Frankfurt, Germany. And the Bedin in Frankfurt, Germany takes his chest of handwritten manuscripts and burns them. So all of the writings, if you see every year he wrote five books, 10 books, 15 books, this is another year that had passed, some of his most precious writings, and based on his, what we have left from what he shared about those writings, he had to lock them in a chest and surrender them to the Bedin in Frankfurt, who made him burn them in front of them. At the age of 29, he publishes his book, Derech Hashem, The Famous Ways of God, that many of you have studied for sure. At the age of 30, his chest of books are again burned or buried. At the age of 33, he publishes his famous books, Misrati Sharim, The Path of the Just, among others, which we're going to study tonight, Derek Tevunot. At the age of 36, he decides to leave to the land of Israel, where he publishes one last book, Lai Sharim Tehila. And at the age of 39, according to this biography, he passes away in Akko, and he's buried in Tiveria. And that's, again, somewhere roughly around 1744, sometime then, that period. The Amcha's life was miserable, miserable. And like I told you, if we wanted to take time in a shi'ur to study the life and history of the Ramchal, the opposition to the Ramchal, the accusations that were hurled at him that are, are patently false, false the other accusations that maybe he needed to respond to properly. Uh, you know, you claim to talk to angels, that's a tricky thing. How do we know that you really are a good person, not a bad person? Uh, how many rabbis do you need to oppose you before you stop doing something? How many rabbis need to support you before you say maybe he is a righteous person, maybe he is a unique phenomenon of the generation? These are great conversations that are not for tonight. But when you find a rabbi like Rav Kook calling the Ramchal Hechasid, the righteous one, meaning... He is, if there's one righteous rabbi in our history, it was the Ramchal. I can tell you that the Ramchal in his lifetime never merited to feel that. He never merited to be known by people as the righteous one. I heard an oral tradition from the students of the Gaon of Vilna, the Lithuanian rabbi who opposed Hasidut, that he cherished the writings of the Ramchal so much he didn't live so much after him. He said if he was alive when the Ramchal was alive, he would have walked from Lithuania to Italy just to kiss the hands and feet of the Ramchal and walk back. And this is a person, just a few years after his death, he was already promoted to the highest places in rabbinic ranking. But in his lifetime, he didn't merit to see any of that. Part of me feels that there are many rabbis in the world that were like that. The Rambam. Today the Rambam is the Rambam. 
And I'm sure that in his lifetime, he definitely felt from certain circles that he was the Rambam. But the opposition to the Rambam was unreal. It was not normal. Still is not normal, by the way. Ironically, talking about opposition to the Rambam, Harav Kukun was once asked, the author of the book we're reading now, Inayah, he was asked how he deals with all of the opposition that is hurled at him from the ultra-Orthodox community. Harav Kuk said he feels exactly like Rabbi Nachman of Breslev and Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato, two rabbis that came just a few years before the world needed them. And because the world wasn't yet ready for them, they were opposed throughout their life. He said, Harav Kuk, I'm sure that just like them, after I pass, there will be those who will need my writings and want my writings. And I think that Harav Kuk did merit to see that as well. And I say ironically because the of Nachman of Breslev, as much as he was persecuted, he had a fair share in persecution, resurrecting the persecution of the writings of the Ramban later in history. Let's not get stuck on history. Tonight I want to learn with you some Misilat Tisharim. I don't know if you and I have ever studied together Misilat Tisharim, but in the event that we have not, so tonight might be our first time, for sure in the Agadah class, it is our first time. And I will tell you, it's very important when you learn Misilat Tisharim, to learn it the way a Sephardic Chacham will learn Misilat Tisharim. And not to learn Misat Sharim the way other people have appropriated the Misat Sharim and done with it all kinds of other things that make people never want to study Misat Sharim again. Right, if you, if you study it incorrectly, it's a book of, that seems like it could come out of Lithuania. But only if you understand it properly, it can come from the pen of the Ramchal. And Baruch Hashem, I want to share with you a little bit of the writings of the Ramchal tonight. So the second link that I sent out in the Google Classroom it takes you to a Safari website because it's not on the app. But it should take you to the 19th chapter of Misilat Sharim. Now, as I was preparing my class, I realized that someone had borrowed my Misilat Sharim and I don't have it anymore. Thank you. No, so I, I, I borrowed an art scroll Misilat Sharim, which is unusual for me to be using an art scroll. Uh, but, but you know what, it's not so bad. It has punctuation at the top and English at the bottom. If, if you want to learn Misad al-Sharim, I don't know, I didn't look at the commentaries. Right, that's a famous, that's the, that's the original like Feldheim one. That's right. That's, uh, this is fairly recent. If I'm not mistaken, this was published quite recently. Um, 2013 it was put out. So it's not so, that's the Jewish classics library edition. That's what everybody, I think I have one of those also. And I'm assuming, just for the sake of conversation, I didn't have a chance to check, that the Misilat Sharim I have in front of me is not censored like some of the other writings that are published. So you'll tell me if it doesn't match what you have in your book. Let's look at chapter 19. Says the Ramchal. Beviur chelkei chasidut. The elements of chasidut, of piety. When I say chasidut, I don't mean dead animals on your head. I mean live neshama and heart inside of you. Chelkei chasidut harishonim shelosha. There are three primary parts to chasidut. Haichad b'maaseh, one concerns action. 
Hashini be'ofen ha'asiyah. The second concerns what accompanies that action. So think about intent and devotion and connection and, and what perhaps Rabbeinu Avraham, the son of the Rambam, calls action that brings about to a divine encounter. So not just doing things, but by doing things in the right way. And the third is the intent. So perhaps if I would differentiate. The second is the the manner in which you execute the action, and the third is the intent you have while you are executing an action in that manner. It's not important for right now, we're not doing this entire chapter together. We're up to the next part. The first part of Hasidut, which is action, is also broken down into two parts. You know, a good teacher is able to look at something and break it down for you. Instead of having to break your head and memorize all the details, they tell you this is a very complicated topic, but we can break everything into three categories. And each one of those three categories is broken up into subcategories. That's exactly what Al-Mukhal is doing for you right now. Chasidut, which is the loftiest character trait in Judaism, Chasidut is made up of three parts. And the first part of action of those three parts is made up of two parts. And here are they. The first is what concerns us and Akadosh Bachu, the Creator. And the second is actions that are between us and our fellow. So there are two elements of action the, the relationship that we have with Akadosh Bachu, the mitzvot we have with Akadosh Bachu, and the second are the mitzvot that we have between us and other people. Yes, and, and he's going to walk us now, like Abin Avraham Rambam did in other character traits, and Abin Avraham Rambam also has about Hasidut, but the first part of the first part, is concerning the relationship between us and HaKadosh Baruch Hu, what does it mean? Kiyum kol ha-mitzvot b'chol ad-dikdukim shebahem ad mekom shiyad ha-adam magat. To fulfill all of the mitzvot, with all of the details of those mitzvot, at the best of your abilities. So different people are able to do different things. But it's not to do some of Shabbat, some of Kashrut, some... It's to do all of it. All of it, with all of the details. Tefillah, not just read it, with all of the details. Ve'elehem shekira'um chachamenu zechoram divacha. And these are what our rabbis of blessed memory called like the extraneous parts of the mitzvot, the extra parts, the parts that are not obligatory. If you're thinking in the terms of Rabbeinu Avraham, the son of the Rambam, he mentions there's a path, the common path that all people must follow. All of us must keep Shabbat, all of us must eat kasher, all of us must pray three times a day. And then there's the path of the individual, that once you accomplish all of the mitzvot, you now have to go back and hone in on those mitzvot and do them better, not quantitatively, but qualitatively, than you did the first time. Rabbeinu Avraham ben Arabam is when he mentions that two people can sit at the same Shabbat table, singing the same songs, making the same blessings, eating the same food. One of them is fulfilling the common road, that's they're doing all the things they need to do. And one of them is already on an individual path, which leads them to a divine encounter, a p'gia elohit. 
at the Shabbat table. You cannot compare the quality of the first person Shabbat with the second person Shabbat. Ki afal pi shaguf hamitzvah nishlam zulatam muchvar yatzab bezeidei chovato. Because even though you have already fulfilled all the technical aspects and details of a mitzvah, this is the path for the majority of Israel, for the common Jew. But the pious ones, their job is to make sure that none of the details are lacking and the mitzvah is done in the most wholesome, complete fashion possible. Again, you must remember that Ramchal is making an, an emphasis. This is not about doing more Shabbat, doing more kosher. There's no such thing. There's a legal obligation that all of us follow. Now we're talking about a qualitative difference. It's the mistake people have in their mind. I'm, I'm going to keep super kosher. I'm going to do super Shabbat. I'm, what does super Shabbat mean? It means you keep Shabbat and I keep Shabbat, but I don't open up cans on Shabbat. And I don't... What does it have to do with Shabbat? Either you can open a can on Shabbat or you can't open a can on Shabbat. That doesn't influence the, the, the divine encounter you are trying to accomplish by observing Shabbat. What are you doing on Shabbat? Are you actually... Thinking about HaKadosh Baruch Hu, are you meditating on the creation of the universe that happened on this day? Are you thinking about all of the things that HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants you to be thinking on? Are you immersed deeply in Shabbat consciousness? Forgive me for the lack of a better term. You know, uh, over the last years in Kilat Shara Shalayim, we've had many guests that have come to us from many different places. And I always noticed something very interesting. The guests that come to us from what we would consider far superior, ultra-Orthodox communities, let's call them that. I don't have an inferiority complex. But for many people, if you come here with a fox on your head and a long coat, and you're a man and you wear stockings with rubber shoes and big glasses, if someone like you come here, you're ultra-Jewish, and we're just, you know, regular San Diego Jewish. And I watch, I watch the two people, and this is judgmental of me, of course, that's what I'm doing here. I watch the Shabbat experience. And I think to myself, I know the way it works at Kirat Shalashamayim. So people come to pray at night and they hear a derasha, not a short derasha, not five minute derasha, they hear a real derasha. They go home, they have a Shabbat meal, presumably they sing, they learn, they do what they do, they go to sleep, they wake up the next morning, they come to Bira Knesset, they read the Torah, they do Musaf, they finish, they have Kiddush, we eat together as a community lunch, we learn Torah, the first class of the day starts around at 12.30. Then they leave, we go home, some people nap, some people don't, everyone does what they do. They come back here again, 5.45, for a second shield of the day. That shield lasts a good hour and a half. After that shield, they pray mincha, they pray mincha, they come back to, to the Berakmesa where they eat, and we have the third shield of the day, which is our Sudash Lashid learning, and then Avit, and then nobody's running to get home. Shabbat ends whenever the community ends Shabbat. And I look at the opposite. I look at my guests that come to me from Muncie or Borough Park or Williamsburg or wherever they come from. And for them, Shabbat is an entirely different experience. Shabbat is, you rush through Shabbat. You, 
You, you do everything. No, nobody there is breaking Shabbat. They don't even do the things we do on Shabbat. So God forbid, they would never open a water bottle on Shabbat and crack the plastic on Shabbat and break a thing on Shabbat and make a vessel on Shabbat. They're never. We're the standard, regular Jews of San Diego who open up water bottles on Shabbat. But what do they do? They come and they pray and they eat. And the next day, they come to Bira Knesset and as soon as we start learning, they leave. The ladies don't even come. So their wives and daughters don't even bother coming to the Bera Knesset. And when my wife says, No, are you coming to Shul? No, nah, we go for an hour in Yom Kippur. You go for an hour in Yom Kippur? You know there are Jews around the world. The Yom Kippur Jews that, don't, that only come on Yom Kippur, they spend more hours in the Bera Knesset than your Williamsburg or Muncie average Jew is spending in the Bera Knesset. And the class Shabbat afternoon... Somebody once came here and told me, I'm in my 50s. I haven't been in a class since I was in yeshiva in high school. Where do we have a class? Who goes to class on Shabbat? And then to learn again, what are you guys crazy? What's wrong with you people? And then during the week, three nights a week, Sunday mornings, Tuesday afternoons, what's wrong with you people? And I think to myself, so who's really doing Shabbat? There are people who do Shabbat better than us. I'm not putting us at the top of the food chain. But how do you think that by not ripping toilet paper and not opening water bottles and heating up your food in a special plata, which by the, we're careful with all those halachot. But that's the, the, that's all your Shabbat is? That's the end game? What about learning Torah? So I had a guest here, and she told us, no, I have to do my Shabbos. What does it mean to do your Shabbos? It means I have to wake up and drink my cup of coffee and read the Jewish newspaper and then I drink another cup of coffee. And then I read the Ami magazine. And then another cup of coffee. I read the Hamodia. And then another. It's overdosing on coffee, just for the record. That's called doing Shabbat. That's called, I don't know, being a Yenta. I don't know what that's called. That's reading the newspaper. What about Shabbat? When are you going to do Shabbat? You come to the Bera Knesset? Oh, no, I'm a woman. I don't. So you're a woman, you don't pray? You're not Jewish anymore? What happened? You lost your status as a Jewish person? How can it be? When a person, we're not asking a person here to do chasidut. I didn't ask you to come and meditate over the fish of Shabbat and why are we eating on Shabbat and why on the holiest day of the week are we doing such physical things. I didn't ask you to come here with deep philosophical inquiries. But at the very least, show up to the Bera Knesset. Jewish people are praying, where are you? No, we don't do that. So here he's telling you, it's not a matter of doing Shabbat. Everyone has to keep Shabbat. It's about the quality of which you keep Shabbat. That's a whole different ballpark. But we knew this already from Rabbeinu Abraham ben Rambam. And for those of you who are listening to the first time, you're welcome to check out our playlist that Baruch uploaded, uh, The Guide to Serving God on YouTube. The next part. And we're not going to finish this part tonight. We'll continue it next week. But we have time to make a serious dent. The second part of action concerns our relationship with us and our fellow. What's the second part of Chasidut? That a person is a person of Hatava, of goodness. That they spend their life. A chassid is one who spends their life 
doing good, and not just doing good, but also making sure never to do harm. This is interesting. We know of a lot of people who try to be good people. Harapiritz always says the first step of doing good is to stop doing bad. It is hard. You don't have to always do chesed for everybody. You don't have to host every guest in the world. You don't have to give money to every poor person in the world. You don't have to. What you do have to do, though, is to refrain from doing anything that harms another person. Why speak poor of them? Why look down at them? Why? Why? Just don't do. Just be quiet. Just don't do anything. Why do you have to be the one who is doing something negative? So the first of a chassid, they don't do anything wrong. But then they're also doing good. This is in the physical matters of the body, with money, with their soul. How do you do chesed with your body, money, and soul? Baguf, in the body, To help a person physically with anything you could possibly help them out with. And to help alleviate their burden a little bit. And that's what our rabbis taught us in Masechet Avot. That the job of a person who wants to acquire the crown of Torah is one who carries the burden of their fellow. You see someone going through something hard. I can tell you a story about the Rabbanit because she not listening. Now this doesn't really fall into the first category. It falls into the third category. But it made me think of her. I went to meet my wife at Starbucks today. Our paths crossed momentarily in our day. So we were both in the same neighborhood. We met each other at Starbucks. As we're leaving Starbucks, we were with our kids. My wife had the kids. Somebody uh, sitting outside, an 18-year-old young lady. And she looks at my wife and says, you have such beautiful children. I said, thank you so much. Thank God. My wife smiled at her. She told my wife, oh my gosh, you have such a beautiful smile. I'm having such a miserable day. And your smile just made me feel better. And my wife sat down with her. She sent me to the car to watch the kids. She took her phone number. She gave her her phone number. If you need anything, if I can help you have a good day, if I can connect you with anybody. My wife doesn't know this person from anybody in the world. What did it cost her? Absolutely nothing. Your Rabbanit isn't tzaddikim. But we, are, we live in a world where your problem is your problem. Don't put it on me. But our Chachamim taught us that part of being a pious person, you see someone carrying a burden that is very difficult for them. Come and help them out. You can. You're physically able to. It's simple. There's uh, certain things we've heard about. They're cliche almost, but people don't do them anymore. To open the door for somebody. It's a physical action. I was once in Port Authority bus station in New York. And I, I guess I was dressed for Shabbat already. I was... And uh, somebody opened the door for me. I said, oh, wow, I, thank you. I said, I haven't seen a person dressed like you in a very long time. I never saw somebody, I guess, with a, I don't know what it was. I don't know, who knows what it was. And then you go to the grocery store and you see someone struggling putting their groceries in the car. You don't have to work at Sprouts to help someone load the car with groceries. Now, I'll tell you, today in today's world, you have to make sure you don't step too close to people and they, they want you to touch their things. That's already a different world. I can't help you with that world. But you can ask, can I please help you with your groceries? I'm happy to help. You see someone trying to take things upstairs to their apartment, help. You see your neighbor moving a couch, help. You see someone on the side of the road needs a jump start, help. That's your job. Baguf, to do kindness to other people with your body.
ואם מגיע לחברו איזה נזק בגופו, והוא יוכל למנוע אותו, להסירו, יטרח כדי לעשותו. And if you see some kind of damage about to happen to your friend in their person or in their possessions, you can get in the way and stop it, then you should do that. Sometimes it might be warning them away from investing their money with someone who's going to steal their money. Sometimes it could be you see physical danger about to happen to a person. You see someone about to fall. You run and grab them. To be on the lookout always, not just how to help people, but how to help them avoid problems that are coming in their life. Bimamon. What about with money? L'sayo, to help them. Ba'asher t'sigedo. All of us have different amounts of money in our bank account. I don't expect all of us to be giving tzedakah equally in terms of quantity. But to not give tzedakah at all? We have an obligation to use our money to help other people. וَلِمْنَوَا مِمَنَوَا هَنِزَكِينَ بِخَوْلْ مَشْيُوْخَانَ And again, with your money, or for their money, to help them avoid any type of negative effect. כَوْشَكَنْ שיחיקו כל מיני נזקים שיכולים לבוא מחמנתו בין יחיד בין רבים to make sure that you don't harm anybody's money that you don't do anything to a person that causes them to lose money people think they're careful about this when's the last time you stole from someone? I don't think most of us don't steal I think it's fair to say at least never chazerom intentionally let me ask you a question you go to a store I spoke with someone recently their whole job They don't make a salary. They just make commission. They're in sales. And you know, in sales, sometimes when it rains, it pours. And sometimes it doesn't rain at all. And then there's a drought. So you come into a store, and this salesperson works commission. Maybe they work on a salary, but they make most of their money from commission. And you come in. I see this in the mall all the time. People do this. We have an hour to kill. You hear that? An hour to kill. Nobody in the hospital has an hour to kill. Only people who are healthy have hours to waste. Other people who value life, even if it's too late, they'll never kill an hour. Oh, I've got nothing better to do, let's put on the... Why would you waste your life like that? If you have an hour, do something useful with your life. Okay, so they go to the mall. This is the mall, is the, the temple of America. And they wander around the mall and they go, Oh, look at those clothes, let's go try them on. They walk into the store knowing they're not going to buy anything. They just need to wait for an hour till their next stop. And they tell the salesperson, oh, can you get me my size and my this and my that? And, oh, I have so much fun. They take some pictures for Instagram or whatever else they're busy taking pictures for. And they say, oh, thank you so much. Have a nice day. And they leave. According to Halakha, the Jewish law, you stole money from the salesperson because you had no intention to buy. Now, if you had intention to buy You go, you, you really would buy something. So you try on a hundred things, well that's how the person makes their commission. They're patient with you to let you try on a hundred things because they know you're going to buy one thing and that'll make their money that they need. But you have no intention to buy? And don't play games with yourself. You know what intention to buy is and not intention to buy. Don't, don't start splitting hairs. Don't become now a, a Rosh Hashivah. When you go and you waste someone's time, you're stealing their time. You're stealing their money. So don't do it. See how many times I walk into a store? I'll say, I'm just looking. I don't want to take up your time. And some salesmen say, no, don't worry. I don't make a commission. Let me walk you around. They'll say, no, thank you very much for telling me. Well, let me know if you need anything. In that case, you can browse all you want. But you have to be honest. You can't steal from people. People return things. 
I know stores have policies and how you can return and what you can. But sometimes there are people who are chutzpanim. I, I was once in line at Costco. This lady ate almost three quarters of a bag of cookies or something. And she brought the bag to return it. Now, Costco will take the cookies. So they're not... Someone's losing, but I don't think it's Costco. They have an interesting model. But this person, you don't... When it says satisfaction guarantee, you don't like the cookie... It's like you tasted one cookie, you didn't like it, bring the bag back. You ate almost all the cookies, you can't like drink the whole bottle of wine and then return the, the cork. And like, what but they'll do it and they'll take it. You want to lose out on Gan Eden for $5 of cookies? Like if you're going to lose out, you might as well lose out on something big. The rabbis taught us that again in Masechet Avot that the finances, the money of your friend should be as precious to you as it is to them. You know, people have this tendency. People borrow your folding chairs. They borrow your folding tables. They borrow, and they bring them back and they're dented and they're damaged. And you know, everyone has friends like that. And there's the friends who bring them back in pristine condition. They're even cleaner than when I sent them. The whole idea is when you borrow something from somebody, someone else's finances should be just as precious to you as your own. To treat other people's property as your own. Benefish in the soul. Shishtadel la'asot lechavero to do for your friend kol korat ruach sheyesh biyado. Anything which will give them emotional, spiritual satisfaction. Ben Whether it's by giving them honor. Even than most people in the world, they crave respect. It's an interesting thing why that's such a big motivator for people. Dale Carnegie has this book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. You know what I'm talking about. I don't remember the title of the book. I, some people in the yeshivot read this book, and I asked Rav Peretz about it. He said, don't waste your time. I'll tell you the book in one word. Kavod. Respect people, flatter people, make people feel good about themselves, and you'll make friends and influence people and everything else. That's what people are looking for. Most people are looking to get respected, to be, feel, feel important. I recently had to go to an event that was in a hotel. A hotel is a fascinating concept to me. What happens? You have enough money to spend two nights in a hotel. You saved up, you worked a little bit, you saved up some money. You take your wife, yourself, your husband, you take yourself to some fancy hotel. How much does a fancy hotel cost? Someone told me now they paid $1,000 a night in a hotel. Really fancy. Yeah? They took a, you'll say $500 a night. Yeah, you go to a $500 a hotel. That's pretty expensive too. I should work in those jobs where you say that. And you come to the hotel, and the first thing they do, they valet park your car. You feel like a king. You don't even have to, they take your keys, they put your bags on, maybe it's a $1,000 hotel, yeah? They put your bags on a little golden cart. Even the cart has a red carpet on it. And this person dressed up in a little uniform, they take your bags for you. You walk in a red carpet, they open the door. There's a person whose job is to open the door. You are king. They open the door for you, they give you your keys, they send you upstairs. You've got a cleaning help that comes every single day to fluff your pillows and wash your towels. 
whether you, whether you want or not. You have a pool and a this and a that and all the things you can imagine. And then what happens? It's the day for you to check out. It's 11 o'clock check out. Already 10.59, they're calling you on the phone. Are you out of your room yet? Are you out of your room yet? And then what happens? You know, I want to stay for another hour. Don't worry, they have security that will come evict you. You tell them, listen, I just want to hang out in the lobby for another day. Get out of here. We'll throw you out. The guy isn't opening the door for you anymore on the way out. And it's amazing to me. People are, they, they're so foolish. You spend all this money, you feel like aristocracy for two days. But it's all a fake. Because two days later, they throw you out. When I go to my brother's house, so maybe they don't have a red carpet. Nobody opens the door for me. But I can stay there for a week and they still want me there. I guess it depends, you know, who your brother is. <laughs> but there are places where you're wanted. The hotel that you pay money for, you're not wanted there. Your money is wanted there. And there are people who they live their whole life running after one kavod to the next kavod, and they find themselves one day broke or down on their luck, and they have no friends anymore. Because none of those friends were really friends. Those friends were all fake friends. The Ramchal says people are hungry. They're looking for honor, for respect. Give people honor and respect. Anything you know, you do for somebody else and it makes them happy, that's considered chasidut. I once asked our parents about giving tzedakah to people, let's say at the kotel. All kinds of con artists hang around the kotel. I told this story recently. I see somebody comes to the kotel, an American tourist came to the kotel, and he sees somebody collecting, he's holding a sign that says, blind man, please give tzedakah. So he sees, he goes to his pocket, doesn't have shekels, he takes a dollar bill and he drops it in the bucket. The guy looks into the bucket and says, thank you so much for giving me a dollar. He says, I thought you were blind, how do you know it's a dollar? He says, no, no, I'm not blind. He says, but your sign says blind man. He says, yeah, the blind man is my friend, he's not here today. So I'm holding his sign for him so he doesn't lose money. He says, and where'd your friend go? He says, ah, today he's at the movies. You have all kinds of charlatans that work around taking people's money from them. I asked her, but there was one particular case of an old lady, she's not with us anymore, in the old city, who I know her bills were paid, already, her apartment was paid, or they would collect money from us rabbis in the old city to help her take care of all her needs. But she would still stand there and collect money every day. And then she had some kind of need to take people's money. And I asked her, do I get a mitzvah of tzedakah, giving a person money that I know they don't need money? They're just a charlatan. Hagapel told me something fascinating. The reward of tzedakah you don't get. Because charity it's not. But you get a mitzvah of chesed. There's a need that this person has to take something. How much are you giving them? $100? No, you give them a dollar, 25 cents. What are you giving them? And you, by giving this person what they so desperately need, you may not be fulfilling the mitzvah of tzedakah. But you're fulfilling a mitzvah of kindness to another human being. And he said, that's a good enough reason for me to give to somebody else. So when I calculate, though, who do I really give tzedakah to, of course, it's only to those who are deserving and needy. But there are people who you may think are undeserving, and what they need is not your money, but they need that attention that they got by getting your money. I know it's a hard concept. For some of us, it sounds like a wrong thing to do. But our parents was teaching me that chesed is something that is not necessarily connected to tzedakah. You can do something for somebody else. It makes them feel good. 
So why not do it? Kol shekin, how much more so? Shelo yitzarenu b'shum minei tzar klal. Not to hurt a person, not to, spiritually. How do you hurt a person spiritually? Emotionally. You bully people. Not you. People are bullied. People are abused. People are made fun of. They're humiliated in public. There are all kinds of... And I have a... So for another time, but the way this justice system works in this country... Somebody gets arrested for a crime they've been charged with. Did they commit the crime? Not necessarily. They just charge them with the crime. So what do they do? They come to their home, and they open their door, and all the neighbors are watching, and they put them in handcuffs, and they put them in the back of a car, they take them to prison, they put them in an orange jumpsuit, they make them stand in front of a judge, not in their own clothes, in an orange jumpsuit, and in all this time, the person is not guilty. Rabbi Chaim David Halavi has a serious essay. What right do we have to humiliate an otherwise free person before we know that they're guilty of a crime? You think that you're enforcing the law. But in some way, and it could be that that's a necessary evil to enforce the law. I'm not a police officer, nor am I a judge in America. But I can tell you that in Jewish law, you're denigrating, you're humiliating a person publicly, a person who may not be guilty. Our rabbis have already taught us that embarrassing a person in public is worse than killing them. So now they get home. A week later, they're home, they posted bail, whatever it is. Uh, Ten months later, because the court system is so backed up, they're declared innocent entirely. But you just ruined their reputation. All of their neighbors know they were arrested. Their kids had to see them being arrested. Their husband or wife had to see them being arrested. You put them in a cage, a cage, like an animal. For X amount of time. Who gave you the right to do that to another human being? You want to enforce the law? You're allowed to. But there's limits to what you're allowed to do. People have emotional and spiritual freedoms that you don't have the right to just take away on a whim. What gives you the right? That's a different conversation. I didn't come to speak about that tonight. To not do things that hurt other people. You're in public. Someone does something. To know how to respond to them in a way that doesn't... You don't have to hurt people. It doesn't always mean you have to be the loser. To the contrary, you're the hero here. You're the one who knows how to not hurt other people. Bullying. Do you know how many children commit suicide every year? Because they've been bullied in school. I'm talking elementary school. Middle school. These aren't adults, these are children. I'm not telling you it's good by, by adults. You should know. There are many systems in the world. Universities have terrible hazing that goes on in all kinds of uh, fraternities and sororities and shemishmo. But there are many places where hazing is part of the process. I don't mean to offend anybody. I have a friend right now going through cadet school in the Air Force. I'm not convinced on a halachic level that everything that, that people do as drill sergeants is legally allowed to be done to another person. I'm sure in American law it's legal. You have to make a soldier out of somebody. But I'm not sure that in Jewish law that's the way we would treat another person, to speak to another person, to scream at another person. What about in residency and medical school? The stories that I've heard from my students, it's an abusive system like any other abusive system in the world. There's people on the top who hold your entire life in their hands. They can do all kinds of things. They can make all kinds of decisions. And what do you have? 
not to hurt another person. Just because everyone else is doing it doesn't make it okay. Essentially, a person who's a chassid has to be somebody who always does good for other people. And ultimately, perhaps the greatest form of doing good for other people is pursuing peace. To try to bring peace between people. To be a peacemaker. There are people that are good at this. They know how to say the right things to help people reconcile their differences. They know how to help people make shalom. That's perhaps the greatest thing you can do for a person. What our rabbis tell us, to bring peace between a man and his fellow, between a husband and a wife. Sometimes you see people, they fight over the, the most trivial of things. But our rabbis have already taught us that someone who's in the middle of a situation isn't able to free themselves from that situation. Sometimes you are given the opportunity to be an objective third party to help them realize you don't have to fight. You're even saying the same thing, just differently. Sometimes you are fighting, but let's help you get out of this fight. Havat shalom, to bring peace, is a primary value in Judaism. B'zat Hashem, next week, the Ramchal is going to continue bringing us some proofs from the Talmud, various stories, various instances that teach us exactly what a chassid is. And I believe that if you and I dedicate next week studying about chassidut and the writings of the Ramchal, it will transform in your mind everything you know to be chassidut. It's not about more, it's about better. A better person as a chassid. You can't be a chassid and be a bad person because the definition of a chassid is one who does good. Bezalat Hashem, we'll continue learning together this time, this week. Uh, God willing, next week. Uh, and uh, hopefully we'll be in Yerushalayim, but if not, I'll see you back in San Diego. Bye.